0: We are going to be in Luke chapter 15 today. I don't think that quite made it to the bulletin, but you can start turning there. Um, But before that, we're actually finishing up the year—the last Sunday of the uh, year—which means if you've been following along in this, what we believe, we're at the last week. What's the culmination, right? And so, for the last two weeks—I wasn't here last week—but for the last two weeks, we're asking the question: Okay, what, what? Like, how would you summarize all of this, and what do you do with it? And thankfully, from the Scripture, we actually have from Jesus himself a good summary of the goal of the whole of Scripture, right? He is asked, while he is alive on earth, what is the greatest commandment, right? And his answer to that, his way of summarizing all of the commandments of the Old Testament is in this way, it is to... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, and with all your mind. In other words, love God with all that you are. And then, even though unasked for, he says, in the second commandment, which is like it, in other words, connecting this with the first idea, making them inseparable, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. So how would we summarize? What is the goal? What is God trying to do in us as Christians? And the answer to that is to make us more loving. First, make us love God more. That's what we were created for in the very beginning is to love God. But sin made us incapable of fulfilling our purpose in life. And because Jesus deals with our sin, we can now love God because he first loved us. And as a result of that love of God, God is also forming you in a heart, in your hearts to love what he loves. In other words, to love your neighbors, your fellow human beings. And that is kind of the summary, the way Jesus describes what is he forming in us as Christians. So I encourage you to take this home uh, to, to discuss among your family or a small group more uh, in detail. How do we live this truth out from the scripture? So... Um, For today, we are also going to have the younger ones with us in service today, uh, which we're excited about. But we will go back to Children's Church next week. And you may be asking, but next week is the first of the month. What about communion? Well, me and Joe did talk it over, and since Communion Sunday is kind of the longest Sunday of the year, what we're going to do, we still think it's important for everyone, including the children, to join us in communion. Um, But after that, we're going to dismiss them to Children's Church. And then we're just going to do Family Sunday another week. We still think that's important to have the children with us, worshiping with us at least once a month. We think that's beneficial for us and also for the children. But we will be changing up since Communion Sunday we know is long. We know that one of the reasons we have a children's church is because it's hard to pay attention for that long. So we're going to change it up a little bit. Um, All right, Luke 15. So we are coming to the end of our year, the beginning of a new year. So this is really a time of transition. And it it just naturally follows that as we're going into a new year, we spend time reflecting. That's just the natural kind of rhythm. And we think, okay, what have we done this whole last year? What do we want for this next year coming up? And as we're reflecting... um, we're also in a transition between sermon series. We just studied this Advent series, the beginning, the birth of Christ from Luke, and then next week, uh, Joe is going to lead us into a sermon series through James. So we're in this transition, and and so uh, as I was given, okay, you can preach from anywhere, Josh. Which. Everyone seems to think, oh, that's great. You can preach anything you want, but it's actually really hard because I have the whole of the Bible, but <laughs> what where do I narrow it down? I can't preach the whole Bible in a sermon. I've tried before. It doesn't end well. Um, so what do I preach on? And as I've been praying over you guys and thinking over you as a church, um, one of the things that stuck out to me is just this story from Luke chapter 1 15, we're going to be reading the first seven verses, but it's one of the things that we as a church do really well. And so just have this opportunity to um, preach one of those sermons that essentially you are already doing this, keep doing it more and more, which just filled the, the New Testament, right? Sometimes we think of the Bible as always rebuking us for a sin, calling us to repent, which it does a lot, admittedly. Um, but once we get to the New Testament, the Holy Spirit shows up and begins to change hearts. Even the letters that are most confrontational to these churches always have this element of, you're doing this so well. The Holy Spirit is growing and changing you. Keep doing this. And this is, uh, this is an opportunity for me to say to you as a church, you are doing this so well. Keep doing it. Um, but we're in Luke chapter 15. Before we begin the sermon, I just kind of want to lay out to you, there are usually human beings, we usually fit kind of on this spectrum between uh, these two extremes. On the one extreme, we have human beings that are like, oh, I'm the worst person who has ever lived, and they just beat themselves up. And they have a hard time accepting the grace of God because we, of, I, of all people, and the one exception, I've sinned so greatly that not even God's grace can cover right? Now, as Christians, we know intellectually that's not true, but there's an instinct sometimes to just beat ourselves up over and over and say, even I am too far gone. On the other extreme, though, are those of us who are like, man, I'm pretty amazing, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've sinned some, but come on, right? And, and as Christians, once again, we know that all sin and fallen glory glory, uh, fallen short of the glory of God intellectually, but our instinct is to be, yeah, but I haven't said that much. I'm still pretty good, right? Uh, and between those two instincts is where most of us kind of live. Uh, some of us jump back and forth quite uh, quickly to the two extremes, but mostly we're, we're kind of on that spectrum. And what I love about this story is Jesus speaks to both types of people in this parable. It, it, it's really interesting. Uh, he speaks and he not, doesn't just tell us what he thinks of us. He shows us in the story. And if you look closely, you also see the emotion of his heart, right? God wants this, um, it, it, God wants us to know not just what he says about us, not just what he does for us, but his very heart for us as well. And we get to see that in the scripture, right? Um, so I invite you, if you're in Luke chapter 15, if you can stand, I'm going to read uh, the passage of scripture for today. Chapter 15, starting verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Father, I pray that we would see your heart for us today. That we would, that we would see not only your intentions, not only your words, but your very heart towards us sinners, that we would see your compassion and your desire and your rejoicing over us, and that through that we would be moved to rejoice with you and to love what you love. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Now, what I want to do is just move through this parable slowly together, because there are so many details that sometimes if we read quickly, we'll, we'll miss some of these things. We'll get the, the big picture, which is good, um, but we miss some of the details that Jesus is putting in there for us. I want to just go through verse by verse, word by word through this so we can see Jesus's heart towards us, sinners. Right? That's, that's the title of the sermon. Is the heart of Jesus for sinners. And I thought about putting onto that, but it'd make it a little wordy. It's the heart of Jesus for sinners like us. Because that's what I want you to see. What does Jesus truly feel about you, truly think about you? What is his heart for you? Right. And I think that's the basis for uh, when, when we talk about all this, like how do we do Christian life? It has to stem from this first. Before we do anything, Jesus had to love us. And we have to be grounded in that first. Um, so um, as we dive into the story, I do want to make you aware, though, that this is a big chunk in Luke of where Jesus is telling parable, which is just a short story with a point after parable, after parable, um, so it's within a certain context. And specifically, this parable is paired with two of them right afterwards, right? And these are all meant to, to give the same message. So I encourage you this week to read the remaining two stories, the rest of chapter 15, because it kind of fills out what Jesus is saying in this. But for now, we're just going to focus on this one part of the chapter. So if we look what is the what is what kicks off Jesus telling the story? Well, we see in chapter 15 it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners. I, I love that, by the way. <laughs> Whenever uh, the New Testament mentions tax collectors, it always puts them with sinners, but it's kind of this extra category. They're like, Yeah, you have the sinners, and then you have the like horrible <laughs> sinners, right? <laughs> the tax collectors. We do that today too, it's different. Um, we don't have like tax collectors usually showing up unless we haven't paid them for a while, in which case we might feel the same way. Um, but this the, think more like maybe in our culture, like the politicians, right? All of us generally agree that they're, they're sinners, right? And most of us agree they're exceptional sinners, right? We don't, we don't really like them. And that's what this is about. And yet what's interesting here is that they were the ones drawing near, to hear Jesus. Note that. This beginning sentence is meant to contrast two different people, the tax collectors and the sinners, who were drawing near to hear Jesus. They weren't just trying to draw near to Jesus because he's the new thing, he's popular, whatever. Not even because he's feeding them, right? They want to hear what Jesus has to say, and that is contrasted with the Pharisees. And what are the Pharisees? Well, if the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear Jesus, this desire to hear his message, the scribes and Pharisees are described kind of in the story as already being there, and yet their attitude toward Jesus is one of grumbling, right? Murmuring, grumbling. In other words, they don't really like that Jesus is associating with these sinful people. Um, and before we dismiss the Pharisees too uh, quickly, sometimes we do that. We read the New Testament. And we're like These Pharisees, they were terrible. They were so uptight and mean and grumpy. Before we do that, I want to at least consider a possibility that maybe we're more like them than we actually want to admit. Imagine with me for a second, how many of you have siblings? Raise your hand. How many of you have younger siblings, okay? Now, imagine with me, it shouldn't be too hard to imagine, a situation where your y- younger sibling does something that you know you would have gotten in so much trouble for, right? And yet, the parents just kind of brush it aside for them. I know that's never happened with anyone here, right? But I think you can imagine it. In those moments, we are deeply upset. We think it's so unfair, well, the Pharisees are experiencing something similar, right? They are the religious people. They set out to follow the commands of God, to follow it with discipline, to, to work really hard. And they make sacrifices in order to follow the law. They give up some things they want in order to be faithful to God. And yet here's this person who claims to be the significant teacher teaching God's word and God's heart, and he's paying more attention to these people who lived their life however they wanted, making no sacrifices to do the right thing. In those moments it feels unfair, does it not? And, and many of us can be in the same way. We're like, I made sacrifices to follow Jesus. I cut some things out of my life that I loved, and yet it seems like God cares about these people who just lived however they wanted, and then they are coming near to Jesus. I think some of us, especially if we 've grown up in christianity or we 've been in Christianity for a long time, can become callous to these um, so called sinners in our culture right We can say oh they're just getting what they deserve this This kind of rang true for me this past week. I was having a conversation with someone and he was he was telling me about this um this political commentator who who was bemoaning the churches in America. And the thing whenever someone bemoans the church in America as a whole, I, I can't speak for the church in America as a whole, and I don't think most people can, right? But he, what he was bemoaning is these churches, they just preach so much about love and grace and mercy and all the easy things. They don't talk about the wrath of God, right? And, and from my perspective, I'm like, I've never been in a church like that. I can't speak for the church in America. I just know historically there's always been churches where people sought out teachers who didn't teach anything hard from the Bible that's always been true and yet what has also been true is God has always had faithful churches who preached the whole Bible has been true from the very beginning. you can see that in the letters you have some of this and it's it's been true ever since right there's been no golden age where all the churches have been preaching perfectly right um, but besides that i I found it ironic that what was contrasted, is the judgment of God with the love of God. And this idea that somehow we're preaching too much about the love of God. I understand saying and they're not preaching em- enough about God's judgment, but to say that they're preaching too much about his love and his mercy, I think betrays kind of a, a, a twisted thinking that, that, that many of us fall into, right? And this idea that somehow God's love and his mercy and his grace are at odds with his judgment and his hatred of sin and his wrath towards sin, right? But what the Bible teaches us about God is that he is not made up of parts. We may think of him and his attributes. God is loving and merciful and gracious, and he hates sin, and he is righteous, and he is holy. But God is all of those things at once. His loving actions are his just actions. His just actions are his loving actions. We can't separate the two. And and so we have this hard time holding those two things together. And so sometimes we may feel like, oh, we're teaching too much about God's love. We need to teach more about his wrath or his judgment. But the truth is, the Bible seems to teach a lot about his love and his mercy and his grace and about repentance from sin and the wrath for sin and the justice and judgment of sin. They both go together. And why is that? The, the, the example I like to give is one of a small child, right? Imagine a small child just kind of having fun on their own. They, they Imagine they have like a fork nearby that they're playing with. They're like, oh, that's cute. But then they start scooting closer to the wall and they start getting really close attention to the outlet. What are you going to do? right? Are you going to say, oh, they're having a lot of fun. It would be really mean to take the fork away from them. No, you're going to take it away. And what is the baby going to do in that moment? Cry. Because the baby doesn't know better. It thinks you're taking away its fun, its joy, and you're being mean. And yet, it is incredibly cruel and selfish to allow the baby to continue. And so when we look at Jesus, what do we see? The tax collectors and sinners are drawing near. Why? Because he loves them. And he welcomes them. As we go on, the complaint that the Pharisees have is that he is receiving sinners and he eats with them. Some translations actually have he welcomes sinners. But whatever the translation, the idea is not Jesus begrudgingly taking these people in because that's what he's got to do because he's God and everything. No, he wants them with him. He wants them to hear what he has to say. He enjoys their company. He eats with them. And yet, if you're reading the parables that came before this, they're all about what? You can just read the titles if you look back. The cost of discipleship, the great banquet that talks about being prepared for the judgment, these difficult teachings that is calling sinners to repentance. In other words, Jesus is not compromising his loving, merciful, gracious side where he enjoys these sinful people and he wants to be with them. He's not compromising his teachings. And it seems to be his teaching of repentance is actually drawing them near to him. And that's what Jesus calls us to do, is not to compromise either. Right? To love someone truly is to confront their sins. There's no way around it. Uh, Oftentimes, when I'm talking with people who really struggle with the issues of our culture, such as how can you tell someone? who is homosexual or whatever, They you're they truly in a relationship where they love the other person, how can you tell them that God wants them to give up what they love? And my answer to that, and it is not a flippant answer, is one that fully feels the pain of what we're calling them to do is that God calls every single one of us to give up what they love, to follow him. There are no exceptions. Why? Because the fall has corrupted us as human beings. We have begun to love what is evil and to hate what is good. And while Jesus is giving us a new heart to eventually love what is lovely and to hate what is detestable. Right now we live in this already, not yet. Sometimes what we have to do in order to follow Jesus is that thing in our life that we love, that all of our senses and all of our emotions and all of our desires and all of our thinking tells us this is good and it is desirable and I want this and it's the only thing that can give me a truly happy life. We have to give it up because God says it is not good for you. And we have to say that despite all of my surroundings and all the context and all my thoughts and feelings and emotions telling me this is good, I trust God over that. I trust that God is not just some grumpy killjoy in the sky wanting to take away these good things from me, this new shiny toy in my hand. Instead, I trust that he's taking it away from me because ultimately it leads to my happiness and my joy. And that if I were allowed to keep it, it would lead to my destruction and my pain and my deep sorrow. To be loving is to speak the truth. But on the other end of the spectrum, we have to make sure that the reason that we are calling out sin is actually because we love people. Because I think it's easy for us to justify this harsh um, condemnation of sinners without actually wanting the sinner to repent and receive mercy. Not because we actually desire their good and their joy. It's because we want them to, to finally get what's coming to them. We want the younger sibling to finally... Get punished like we were, right? We want it to be fair, and it's not out of a desire of love for them that we want to call out the truth. And yet, the Bible holds these things together inseparably: love and truth. So we have Jesus, who is a friend of sinners and tax collectors, who welcomes them, who wants to be with them, who eats with them, and yet who still teaches the hard truth of repentance from the very things that they love and. That is the Jesus of the Scripture. Let's keep reading. Um, What leads off this storytelling? Well, as we read, it says in verse 2, And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So, verse 3, so he told them this parable. In other words, this parable is a direct response to these religious people who are upset that Jesus cares about the sinners. So let's hold that in our mind as we begin to read this. Okay, verse four. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, he, if he has lost one, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one he has lost until he finds it? Now, here's the first question I have. Do shepherds actually do this? Like, it seems a bit reckless to me to leave all of your sheep in the open country, not gated, not anything else, just kind of free there to go get one sheep. When he comes back, is he not going to have 99 lost sheep? Like, I don't understand the the thinking behind this. Um, And and I tried looking up, maybe there's some sort of cultural background behind this, and no one tends to agree or understand why he said this. In general, as I'm studying the passage, this is the impression I get. Maybe this is not advice for good, actual, real-life shepherds. but what he's trying to do is emphasize what God cares about. And he cares about sinners who are lost. Right? That's going to be something emphasized again and again and again. And I want you to feel that sting because in the minds of the Pharisees, they are those 99 sheep. They've been good. They haven't wandered. They, they, they've done everything the shepherd told them to do. What do you mean you're going to leave me to go get a lost sheep? That seems reckless. You should be here to protect us. And yet, the emphasis of God here is that he cares deeply about those who are lost. And to the sinner, what he is saying is, I am coming for you, and I am coming for you until I find you. Notice the emphasis in this parable. This sheep that is lost has done nothing to be found. The sheep that is lost is not trying really hard to get back. We know nothing about the sheep. We only know about the shepherd, that he noticed his sheep is lost. He cares so much for them. Now, another interesting note here is that, like, may- maybe shepherds are better at this, but I think if I looked out at a flock of a 100 sheep, it would be hard for me to be like, oh, there's one gone, right? Surely the shepherd maybe had to count them or whatever, but he noticed the sheep was gone, and and then he went for it. He searched for it until he finds it. Now, ultimately, a parable is communing, communicating a central idea. It's not like an allegory where there's one-to-one for everything. And so we can look at this and say, well, doesn't God know where every person is? How can he lose them? No, God knows where we are. The description, though, is, is one of sin separating us from God. And that's where we should be, is with him. So instead of us needing to draw back to God, the, the emphasis is on God instead going after us. And that's the emphasis of the Bible. That is what separates Christianity from every other man-made religion out there. All these man-made religions are try- recognize there's something wrong with humanity, something that needs to be fixed, and their answer is, so do better. You, do better. There's something wrong, so fix it. Christianity and the the scripture, the God of the Bible, teaches something different. Something is wrong with Christian. Something is wrong with human beings. Something's wrong by our fault. We chose this wrongness. But there's nothing you can do about it. There's no way the sheep can get found again on its own. There's no way the sheep can make it back. Instead, God has to take the action and pursue you. You read a lot of times these stories of of Christians who come to Jesus who who started off as incredible sinners, who if they believed in God at all, they hated it, all right? The, The extent of their belief was to hate the God of the Bible. If you would have asked them, do you think someday you may become a Christian? They would have said never, unhesitatingly. There's nothing about their lives that said, I want God. I want repentance. And yet, God pursued them in their sins. And when they become a Christian and they tell you about their life, they said, man, I hated God. But when I look back on my life, I realize that God was with me every step of the way. Every circumstance in my life, every relationship he brought into my life was meant to draw me to him. He was always there working. So, some have actually described him as the hound dog of heaven. God loves you so much, sinner, that he drops everything and he pursues you. The Son of God himself drops down from heaven where he is worshipped as God because he is God. He clothes himself in humanity with all its frailties and indignities. As a poor man who has hated and despised his whole life. Why? Because he wants you. He goes after you. He is relentless. Right? Some of us have this impression, and and as Christians, sometimes it sounds ridiculous, but we still hold on to it, that we have to make ourselves right before coming to God. We have to make ourselves right. Like, we're not in a good mood, so we shouldn't go to church because we're just so kind of far from God. We need to change something before we come into His presence. And the Bible rips this idea apart. There is nothing you could do to be right with not a single thing. And it's worse than that. Every attempt that human beings make on their own to be right with God is is only making things worse. You look at the history of the Bible. Every time human beings on their own try to draw near to God, it just ends worse. The Bible describes even the best deeds of humanity as filthy rags. So if you want an image for what it's like to try and make yourself right before coming to God, imagine that nasty sponge that you use to wash like everything. It's got bits of like old chicken on it. It sat in the sink for a month. And you're like, I should really throw that out. But instead, what you do is you take it and you're like, well, I need to clean the table and the dishes and set it out for a meal, right? That's, that's, I see all you cringing. That's the point. This is what our good deeds are. There's nothing in us that can make us draw near to God. It's like taking that gross, moldy, chicken-filled sponge to clean dishes with before a meal. It's not helping. There's nothing in fallen humanity that can make ourselves right. The best that we have to offer is, is not good. It makes things worse. We are in a desperate, desperate condition. The Bible describes us as not only as being lost. The, the, the Bible describes us not only as being in rebellion against God. It describes our condition as dead. We are spiritually dead. We were made to be alive, but we're dead. And we need to be brought to life. So if we're foolish enough to think, oh, well, maybe we can find a way again and get right before coming to God. Maybe, maybe we can just surrender and and give up and stop rebelling against God, then then we'll be all right. No, because there's no way a dead person can bring themselves back to life. It's only happened once, by the way. And that was Jesus himself. Not a single one of us can do it. And so we need the shepherd to hunt us down until he has found us. But notice this. When the shepherd finds that sheep, what does he do? Because so many of us, we're scared to come to God as we are because we think that we're such horrible sinners. We have screwed things up so badly that, yes, God's grace is huge, but I... Surely I have sinned more than anyone else, and I am the exception. God's grace cannot cover me, because if you just knew what I did, or what I thought, or what I said, you would know. What the Bible says, though, about the shepherd, when he finds the sheep, notice what the shepherd does not do here. The shepherd does not berate the sheep, not give it a lecture about being lost, does not punish the sheep in any way. What does the shepherd do? He grabs the sheep and puts it on his shoulders. He doesn't even make the sheep walk back with him by inside saying, you got yourself lost, you're going to walk all the way back with me, right? No, he puts it on his shoulder. Once again, illustrating that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We are wholly dependent on the mercy of God. But the good news is that he is full of mercy. And so he lifts us on his shoulders, and notice, it doesn't just say he does it begrudgingly or angrily, mumbling to himself, this stupid sheep that got lost that should have just paid attention and followed me. No, it says that when he found it, he rejoiced. And that's the point of this parable. Jesus' heart for you as a sinner is that he desires you. Your sin hasn't, for some amazing miraculous reason your sin has not tainted god's love for you it has not separated you from god's love in fact all it has done it has driven him to pursue you to the ends of the earth to bring you back because he wants you he wants a relationship with you he wants to eat with you and not begrudgingly not just because he's god and he has to god loves you deeply And most of that, because we've grown up in church, we get it. God loves us, of course. He's God. Let me say it a different way. God likes you. God enjoys you. The Bible describes him as singing over you. God wants you near him. He enjoys you near him. You're not the outcast family member. You're not the redheaded stepchild, which has a redhead, but not a stepchild. I do find that term mildly offensive, but you're not that, right? You're not begrudgingly part of the family, the weird one, the outcast. You're not the one sitting outside of the crowd, the unpopular one who gets included because you have to No, you are someone God loves dearly. He designed you before creation. He planned your life out every single step before creation. He designed you exactly as you are in your mother's womb. And God doesn't want you to be exactly like everyone else. Yes, sin has corrupted you. God wants to change you, but he doesn't want to change you into something different. He wants to change you into who you truly are, into who you were truly meant to be before sin corrupted it. There's nothing about your personality God finds annoying. There's nothing about your personality that God finds distasteful. It is only sin that God wants to deal with. You yourself, God wants to be with. He has made you as you are for a reason. He loves you. He wants you. He desires you to be near him, and his family is incomplete without you. So because of that, he sent his very son, Become a human being, to live the sinless life that you could never live, and then take the punishment for sin in your place, namely death, to die, to suffer all the indignities of a murderous, brutal, violent death, and then three days later rise again so that you can have life. That's what God thinks of you as a sinner. And so, as we keep reading, what we see is this. He found the sheep. He lays it on his shoulder. He rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. and and i just want to deal with this sentence right off the bat over 99 righteous people who need no repentance why does jesus phrase that way as christians we know are there any righteous persons who need no repentance no of course not that's silly every person has sinned why does he do that because he's talking to people who genuinely don't think they're that bad right And, and when you're talking with people sometimes they might say oh i'm why, why do you think you are a part of God's family? Why do you think you will go to heaven? And sometimes what they say is like, oh, I'm a good person. Like, yeah, I i mean, maybe I, I sin sometimes, but for the most part, I'm a good person, right? I can, like, I don't think God's going to punish me with hell, right? But here's the problem with that. When we begin to compare ourselves to other human beings, yeah, we can usually find someone worse than us. That's true. I don't want to conflate and say everyone here is just as evil as Adolf Hitler. Of course not. That's silly. The problem, though, is a matter of perspective, right? When you compare the distance of the Earth to the moon, if you measure that in a yardstick, that's a long ways, is it not? But when you back up and you measure it in the perspective of the size of the galaxy or the size of several galaxies, or the size of the universe, you begin to understand that the distance from the Earth to the Moon is insignificant. If you can even see the Earth and the Moon at all from that distance, they're inseparable, a tiny pinpoint. More likely, the best you can see is the whole of our solar system united as one dot of light. So yes, are we better than other people? Yeah, but that's not, the problem is that's not the comparison. Our comparison is not us to other human beings. Our comparison is us to God. How does our life stack up to Jesus? And what you realize is that each and every one of us is in desperate, desperate need of God's mercy because there's nothing in our lives that could ever earn us eternal life. All that we deserve is hell. All that we deserve is God's wrath because what we've done is incredibly evil. And when we think about that, we're like, what have I done that deserves evil? A lot of our problem is we, we make sin something less than it really is. We, we excuse way our sins are like, yeah, I gossip some, but I just like tell stories. It's not that bad. Well, if we look at what gossip is, what we're doing is we are for our own benefit, our own pleasure, our enjoyment and storytellers are tearing down a brother and sister, ruining their reputation to other people so that we could find joy. You say, well, when you put it like that, well, I'm putting it like it actually is without the comfort of our own, right, our own excuses for it. Or or, or think about even, um, think about even our relationships, Right? For instance, yes, I talked about homosexuality, but what about the Christian who who has a relationship with someone who is of the opposite sex, but they are not themselves a Christian, right? The Bible says that that is sinful, right? But we don't want to do it. We don't want to break that relationship apart because we love them. We enjoy them. Surely that's good, right? What we are not reconciling with is that what we're saying in that moment is I care more about how that person makes me feel than whether they will go to heaven or not. I care more about their relationship with me than their relationship with God. And I'm willing to use them to feel good, even if it condemns them to hell. And when we begin to view our sin as it really is, what we realize is each of us falls so, so short of of anything good. Even the best that we have is so tainted by selfishness and evil that without God rescuing us, we're hopeless. But here's the good news. God still loves us for some reason. He still pursues us. He still hunts us down in the midst of our sin. And the the condition God describes us as before he rescues us is we're his enemies, right? We're not neutral. We're not just lost. We're not just trying to find our way back. No, we are enemies of God. Even as he comes up to us, we're spitting and swearing at him, telling him to go away. And yet he puts us on his shoulders and he takes us home. He repairs our wounds. He makes us whole again. He makes us alive again. That is how much God loves you. And there are no 99 righteous persons in need of no repentance. And yet... What's interesting here is that even to those people, Jesus is giving an invitation. It's not just that God loves those sinners who know that they're sinners, and he despises the ultra-righteous people. No, he loves them too, and he's telling this parable for their benefit. If you continue reading and you read the parable of the prodigal son, which is two more stories away, you'll see this displayed even more when you see the older brother who stays. So I challenge you to read that this week. But the point even in this parable is this. Jesus still loves the Pharisees. He's still given an invitation to the Pharisees. He's saying, look, this is what God loves and rejoices over. Come rejoice with me. Come rejoice with God. So what's the lesson of the story? If you are far from God and you think that you cannot possibly, until you cleaned your life up, come to Jesus. What I want you to know is that he right now, even in the midst of your worst muck, is already pursuing you. He is ready, he is willing, he is able to take you on his shoulders, to wipe away every sin, and to make you part of his family. You don't have to clean yourself up. In fact, you can't. He wants you right now. But for those of you who have been Christians for a while, and it's been long enough that you, the surprise that comes Jesus loves me despite my sin. The surprise that comes from being a part of this family begins to fade and we become callous to the sinners around us. Yes, the sinners we like, we care about, and we, we want them to repent, but the, the other ones, the ones who annoy us frustrate, us, frustrate us, make us angry, we're like, oh, can't wait for God's wrath to come on there. Like if they just just get what's coming to them. What Jesus is inviting us to do is to recognize his heart. He loves that sinner. And you don't have to sit there bitter and angry of Jesus' love. Instead, you get to rejoice with him. Right, the story of the prodigal son, the father is surprised when the, son, when the older son goes, How are you giving this son a feast? I've served you faithfully. I haven't rebelled. Why don't you give me a feast? And the father, surprised, goes, Everything I have is yours. If you wanted a feast that was yours. Come, my son who is dead is alive again. And here in this parable, the sheep that was lost, it's found. This is the thing that brings joy to God's heart. Come rejoice in that. And guess what? We don't just get to um, rejoice Uh, if we keep reading the story. We find out that we actually get to participate in the hunt. We see that at the end of the gospels, we have this great commission, where now that Jesus is going to heaven to prepare a way for us, He's sending us His Spirit. It is now through us that Jesus goes and pursues the lost sheep. So I actually want to ask something, call call a response, because um, I want you guys to see something real quick. How many of you, if you are Christians, became a Christian because you watched a radio or television show? Cool. There are one or two of you. How many of you became a Christian because some stranger knocked on your door? All right. What about um, who, who met you on the plane? You went to an evangelical rally. I actually thought a few more on that one. Okay. How many of you became a Christian because your family taught you about Jesus growing up? All right. Keep your hands up. How many of you became a Christian because a friend of yours shared the gospel to you? How many of you became a Christian because your neighbor invited you to church? Okay I want you to realize how by the way, knocking on doors the evangelical rallies, telling strangers and playing all good but I want you to realize that the way Jesus mostly works is through relationships. most of you it was because of your family. those who wasn't because of your family it was a friend or it was a neighbor. Right? And how many of you who maybe grew up in church had a season where you walked away? All right. Why did you come back? Was it because you just felt one day to come back? Some of you, yeah, which is good. Welcome. But a lot of you, hearing your stories, it's because your neighbors like, why don't you come? And here's, here's what I want to commend you, church, for. Here's why I said at the beginning, this is something you do so well. Keep doing it. The way Jesus mostly works is by building friendships, and relationships, and because they're people we love, we invite them in. There's something you guys do so well. You invite your neighbors. You keep inviting them, right? Sometimes to the point where they're like, ah, fine, I'll just go just to get this person off my back. And yet, by the way, are there anyone like you who just came the first time to get someone off their back? Is there? There, there have been a few of those, and God even uses that, right? I'm not saying be purposely annoying, but be persistent, right? Invite people, love them, be their friends. And don't just, the, by the way, God puts people in our life for a reason. You don't have to go knock on the stranger's door. If you want to, awesome. God can use that. But God puts so many people in your life. Go become their friend and invite them to Jesus. Bring them into the family. We get to be a part of that work. And together as a family, we rejoice. And we get to share in the joy that God has that one of his children who was lost is found. One of his children that was dead has been raised back to life. That is such an incredible, incredible joy of God. And we get to share in it. So that's what I want to challenge you with this next year is this. That if you truly are beating yourself up and you can't imagine that God would ever forgive you because all the things you have thought and said, and did. I want you to know that he is pursuing you even right now. Let him love you. If you are a Christian, I want you to join in God at every opportunity to rejoice over these lost sheep that have been found, to go out with him in the hunt. Ultimately, it's not us who say We can't lift the sheep on our back. We're fellow sheep. That would be weird, right? It's Jesus who saves, but we get to be a part of his hunt. We get to be a part of inviting people to the family. We get to experience the joy and the pleasure of the Jesus who is the shepherd who goes and hunts for every last sheep until they're found. So with that being said, what I want to leave you with this week is I want to encourage you, continue read chapter 15 on your own. I want you to look at the emotion used in this language to see the heart that Jesus actually has towards you a sinner and what he desires of you. And I pray that uh, that you spend some time praying. Who are the sheep, the lost sheep that God has put around you? And how are you going to get to experience the joy of God rescuing sinners this year? How do you get to participate? All right, That's my challenge. So uh, let me pray and we'll continue in worship. Father, I just want to thank you for loving us despite us hating you. Thank you for sending your son to hunt us down, even though we ran from you. Thank you for not just begrudgingly saving us, but wanting and desiring us. I pray that your heart for us, we truly begin to realize that not just intellectually, but it sinks down into who we are, that your love actually affects our loves, that your desire for us affects our desires, and that we begin to love what you love, to hate what you hate to rejoice with you when you rejoice. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.